Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, March 24th, 2019, given by Pastor Jonathan Dinger. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Looking at the epistle readings here in, um, in Lent, in the Sundays in Lent. Look at the epistle readings, Paul's letters to the church, and to see how they might speak to us. And uh, it makes some sense to me. So they, they did a remake of a TV show. I'm a child of the 60s and 70s. And so TV shows, right? And so, in fact, the other day I was in, a, I was in, a, in the restaurant and somebody in a booth next, the, their phone ringtone went off and we began a debate on whether it was, this is sad, on whether the ringtone was the sound effect of Bewitched when she, from Bewitched, does anyone know that show? Or I Dream of Jeannie. We couldn't remember whether it was that, that nose twitch or the whatever. Anyway, we debated for like 10 minutes. So I'm a child, but one of my favorite shows was Lost in Space. Lost in Space. And so back in the 60s, and the, the, the special effects were so bad. They were so bad. You know, it was all cardboard and garbage cans. And, you know, like the robot that's supposed to protect Will Robinson, it, he's like a garbage can wrapped in tinfoil with, you know, those, uh, wa- those dryer ducts for arms, you know, and a fishbowl. I mean, that's about what it was. So he couldn't do no protected. Of, now, there's a remake that was done of it. They did one season of it, and it was really good. That robot, he could do some damage. But in the 60s show, when the, he would go around flailing his arms, going, danger, danger, Will Robinson, you know, that's what he would do. It wasn't like he could do much protecting. All he was doing was uh, shouting a warning. That's all he could do, just shout a warning, create a distraction. So I got some signs for you I want to show you. So here's some signs, which I think are kind of fascinating. Because you should all know where Batman lives, just so you know. That's why, okay, I just think these are funny. This is great. Look at all these signs. Oh, secret nuclear bunker? It's over there. Yeah, okay. My boss told me to change the stupid signs, so I did anyway. I like that, okay. Quit stealing our letters. (laughs) That's great. Boy, they had those a lot in Portland. What a joke. Lane closed to ease congestion. Yeah. Oh, I love this one, right? Take the second exit. Oops, no, I meant the first. Oh, you'll have to go around again. Look, I said I was sorry. Okay. That's pretty good. I don't know how you read all that in the sign. That's a good one. (laughs) This, that's good. Okay, now it's serious, right? Now it's serious. So in other words, right, that's the last one. Ignore the warning signs at your peril, right? Ignore the warning signs at your peril. I mean, really, on the sign to the freeway, the entrance, it says, wrong way, do not enter. Don't go that way. Okay, don't do that. Like planes, trains, and automobiles. Remember that movie? I'm now I'm really dating myself again. But, you know, going the wrong way down the freeway, they are not paying attention to the signs. And this is what's interesting. Now, I want to be serious with you for for a moment. I mean, that's a pretty serious sign. Proceed at your peril. These are the kinds of things that could happen to you if you go this way. 
And that's what we get here. If you're looking in your Bible, if you happen to have your Bible, first in First Corinthians 10, Paul is counseling the church. It's funny, you know, I remember as my kids were growing up, we'd talk about them growing up, and I remember them saying, yeah, Dad, you used to yell at us all the time. And my wife and I look at each other and we're like, I can never remember raising my voice, except for that one time in the parking lot when I thought they were going to get hit by a car. But I mean, never, I can never remember speaking louder than this to my kids. And, and that may sound very strange, like I'm lying to you. Seriously, it just, there's no yelling in our house. And so I just, but they, for in, from their perspective, from their perspective, I was yelling at them all the time. And it's interesting because I think when we read these warnings, when we see warnings from Israel's history, history I'm afraid that people think God's yelling at them. God, you're yelling at me all the time. God, you're always yelling at me. You're always telling me what I'm doing wrong. And God, as a loving parent, is saying, you know what, some of these things matter. And I'm going to speak directly to you. I'm not whispering and we're not chuckling. I'm going to speak directly to you because these things matter. This is what's happening here. Paul is speaking directly to a church that's going through some hard times. But this is really, it's funny because as I'm writing this sermon, I'm thinking, boy, there's a lot of law in here. This isn't law. This is actually gospel. This is actually good news that God loves us enough to put up signs. I mean, have you ever tried to navigate streets where there's no signage? Have you ever tried to find your way in a completely foreign, alien, unfamiliar place when there is no signage? I'm old enough to remember all the times traveling cross-country when the interstate system was not complete and trying to make your way cross-country and my father just being in a tizzy constantly because he was, we were always making wrong turns. And he would complain bitterly about how horrible the signage is in Kansas City, you know, or he would just go on and on about how horrible signs are. We would call that incompetence on the Department of Transportation. You don't put up signs, that's incompetence. You don't care about the taxpayers, you don't care about tourists or drivers, you don't care. You must not care. Or you must assume just the insiders all know where they're going. But God is loving. I want you to know this. This is really a sermon that I pray is filled with a ton of grace because these are the measures of God's love. A couple things I want to mention here, though, too, because it's been heavy on my heart in working with uh, a number of people, a number of them young people, struggling with depression, struggling with thoughts of things like suicide, taking their life. And, you know, one of the things that I love about these warning signs is I think my kids thought I was yelling at them, and I think people think when God gives warning signs, God is yelling at them. I think that sometimes young people today think they should have the same lifestyle at 21 as they see their parents have. I think that other times we struggle as parents to guide and correct and adjust and to have it received. It's tough. These are tough things. So my, here's my point. I'm going to give you five examples. Five examples. Because I think these warning signs are a tremendous outpouring of God's love. I think this is just tremendously loving, that God loves us so much that he's going to say, hey, watch out, because I want you to be blessed. I want you to be blessed. I'm not the great. I think too many people think God is the great party pooper in the sky, or he's a cop. He's just a cop with his radar gun on you. You know, it's like that sin radar gun. Ooh, gotcha. I'm going to get you. Too many people have that perception of God. And instead, God, as the perfect parent, 
And as parents, we struggle. We don't, know, we don't always do warning signs perfectly. We don't always say it right, do it right. We try, we try. But God does do it right. Because I see too many young people sometimes when they experience failure, it's the end of the world. If they have a loss, end of the world. They get dumped by their boyfriend or their girlfriend, end of the world. They don't get, a, they don't get the car they want, they want. They don't get the grade they want. They don't get the internship they want. They don't get, it's the end of the world. I'm done. Let me give you five names. Robert Downey Jr. Um, or five incidences. The 2004 Boston Red Sox. The um, um, Abraham Lincoln. Let me see if I can pull these out of my memory. Can I get these right? Um, Josh Hamilton. You may not know that name. Josh Hamilton. And there's one more. Germany and Japan. Those are all tremendous success stories. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. I said Morton Downey Jr. at the first one. My son was very quick to remind me. And actually, I had someone else, I had my son-in-law come and say to me, who's Morton Downey Jr.? I go, dude, he was the famous one. Uh, but not anymore, because Robert Downey Jr. is Iron Man. Okay, that's Iron Man. Sherlock Holmes, whatever. So, but he, all of those ones that I gave you, is every one of those were massive failures. Massive. Robert Downey Jr. had been nominated for Academy Award for his work in, uh, as Charlie Chaplin. Beautiful, fantastic work. Um, dove into, he was like Tony Stark. I'm a geek, if you know what I'm talking about. He became an alcoholic. He was addicted to anything you could find. He was sleeping with whatever moved. And he became blacklisted in Hollywood, and he was at the very bottom and, and returned his life around. He's not a Christian story. He was at the very bottom. Josh Hamilton, uh, Texas Rangers baseball player, also heavily addicted, but he found Jesus Christ transformed his life. I mean, he was out of baseball, kicked out. He was suspended, kicked out for drug use, drug abuse, so forth. Reformed his life, found faith, humbled himself, became MVP of American League, um, all-star several times. Un tremendous story. Um, Abraham Lincoln is a phenomenal story. If you don't know this history, Abraham Lincoln was absolutely a loser as a businessman. Bankrupt twice could not run a successful business, suffered a nervous breakdown, right? We would call it post-traumatic stress. He suffered through that, lost three consecutive elections to elective office, and today many of us consider him uh, America's greatest president. Um, Germany and Japan, absolutely completely destroyed and devastated countries and economies, bankrupt morally, philosophically because of the failed leadership that they had, a devastating war that cost tens of millions of lives around the globe, and they were resurrected. When you talk with leaders from those nations and those individuals that I'm talking about, what they say is the most teachable moment of their life was the time of their greatest failure. The most te I want you to hear me on this. Young people especially, please hear me. The most teachable moments of your life are the moments that often are considered the greatest failures. I'll tell you what, not a whole lot of learning goings, goes on as you win the state championship. At the party, most, most don't stop and spend the next three days evaluating why we were so successful. They just party. 
You get a raise, you just say, great, I got a raise. You get a promotion, great, I got a promotion. I'll tell you when the self-examination happens is when you get fired. Or you get that evaluation which puts you on probation. Or you get dumped. Or there's a character flaw that you discover in yourself that you wanted to blame on other people, but you actually discovered it was in yourself. Those are, the, are you with me on this? Amen. The most teachable moments in our life are often the lowest points. Teachable moments. Now that's not where we want to go. It's not the goal. That's certainly not God's goal. But they're the teachable moments of our life where God is ready and prepared and eager to teach us at those moments. No one should pray for them, seek them, long for them. They're going to happen. You don't have to pray for them. Right? Those hurts and brokennesses, those failures, they happen in our lives. Well, if you've never had an unstrength, if you have no strings of brokenness in your life, then now pray for one. I mean, really, I can't imagine that there is one, but that's the deal. So in Israel's history, these are examples of the teachable moments in their life and what God could do. I mean, we could have done it with the New Testament, with the Passion reading. You know, Paul says, hey, take these warnings from Israel's history. Paul could have said, take your warning from my life. I persecuted the church of God. I wanted to kill the followers of Jesus Christ. Or how about my buddy Peter, who said he would follow Jesus to death and then denies even knowing him. So how about a failure of belief? How about, a, how about the rest of the disciples who want to take out their swords and start fighting with swords and Jesus has to say, stop it, you idiots. It's not how we do things. How about when Jesus asks them to pray and they can't even pray and they fall asleep? A direct invitation from their Savior, please pray with me, please, please, I am in anguish and agony. Sorry, Jesus, I'm a little tired. I mean, don't, take your warnings wherever you're going to get them. But what Paul gives us is four warnings here, and what I'm going to do is walk through them quickly and then show you, he gives these beautiful words of sheer gospel at the end. God is faithful. I'll get there. But these four warnings are in religious jargon. I'm going to explain them a little bit. The first one is idolatry, right? And I'm going to go quickly here, but I'm going to come back to it, Ty, so just stay on one. The first one is idolatry. The second one, he talks about sexual immorality. That's talked about a lot in the scriptures. The third one is don't test God, testing God. And the fourth one is don't grumble, like those guys in the wilderness that grumbled. I'm going to explain those. First one, the first one is idolatry. I'm guessing that not many of us have a small secret shrine to Baal in which we're sacrificing household cats or something in the basement. I'm guessing. Because I think we think with idolatry, that's what it is. That we have some kind of idol that we bow down to or you know, that we do that kind of thing. Let me, give me those three slides, Ty. This is the word I'm going to use for it, indulgence. Did you get those three slides? Okay, this one is an ad. In a city where indulgence is nothing to feel guilty about, okay, find, oh, wait, find your perfect cup or something like that. Something like that. Find your perfect cup of coffee. Something like that. So it's New Orleans, right? So New Orleans, they're proud of it. We're proud of it. This is a place where you don't have to feel guilty about indulgence. Awesome. Let's go there. Like Las Vegas, right? Next one. Coldstone, we got one of these. Coldstone Creations, look at that. Founder's favorite. You get the Coldstone to go. And then there's healthy. Uh, is there anything healthy about that? Really? I mean, I wish it was true. I'd go get eight of them. If it was true. Yeah, okay. I can get endorphins lots of ways, buddy. Oh, and this one, welcome to a world of indulgence. Now, isn't it fascinating? I kind of almost think that's the culture we have. 
as a world of indulgence. In other words, here's what indulgence is in our modern definition. Indulgence is do what you want when you want to, just because you want to. Fair? Do what you want when you want to do it, just because you want to. That's indulgence. Don't need it. It's not necessary. I just want it. Boy, do we live in that culture what? I want it. Who are you to say no? I want it. I'm going to do it. You know what's funny? You know what the word indulgence actually means? It actually means kindness. Mercy. It's what prompted the, Re- the Reformation. The Reformation was about the misuse of God's kindness. See, the indulgence was an idea that Christ had so much merit in heaven that the church could give you an opportunity to access that through proper contrition and repentance the church could issue to you an indulgence now in if you put the very best possible spin on it it could be a beautiful thing is there is our christ's merits exhaustible there's a treasury a storehouse you can never exhaust the grace of christ and so to come to christ and ask Will you share your mercy with me? Will you pour it out for me? My heart is broken. I'm longing for your grace. That's an indulgence. By the way, you just got one. Didn't you? In the mercy of Almighty God, Jesus Christ was sent to die for you. It's for his sake that he forgives you all your sins. And so in the stead, right, in the place of Christ, and because he commands me to tell you, your sins are forgiven. That's an indulgence. But that's not how we read indulgence. I will tell you that I think the more modern use of the word idolatry is indulgence. I'm going to do what I want when I want to do it because I'm going to, I want to do it. That's who that is. God's remedy is discipline. Now, here's what it's interesting. In our world, oh, discipline, oh, that's how depressing. It's a typical sermon, pastor telling us what we can't do. You know what discipline is? Discipline is not, because in our modern age, and especially when I was a teenager, I felt that discipline meant I got to say no to all this stuff. That's not what discipline truly is. Discipline is knowing what to say yes to. That's the difference. Because God is not longing to say no to us. God is longing to say yes. God is a God of yeses. In your baptism, God said yes to you. You're mine. In a holy communion, God says, yes, you're invited to the table. In your confirmation, you say yes back to God for what he said yes to you. Even as the body of Christ, we say yes to each other, to encourage, to walk with each other, to pray for, and to support one another in our walk with Christ. That's the God we have. So discipline is not a God of no, it's a God of saying, I want you to know what to say yes to. Because when, I, I love to say it this way. Instead of going around, praying, say, God, will you bless this thing I'm doing? Why don't we just search the scriptures and find out what God's blessing? And then just do that. Then you don't have to ask. You don't have to say, God, I hope you bless this. No, let's do the things God is blessing. That's always a good thing. So that's number one. The first thing is idolatry. I'm going to call it indulgence. It's the warning sign. So when we're tempted to say, I want to do what I want when I want to do it whenever I want. I don't care what the consequences are. I don't care what it costs. I don't care who it affects. I don't care. Because I want to do it. And here's another one. How dare any of you say no to me? Okay, that's another indulgence. That's a warning sign. That's God throwing up a warning. He says, we live in that way where you're going to drift from me. We're going to take a wrong turn. So that's a warning sign. Second one. 
Do you know this? So this is one. Oh, this one is a hot button because, boy, people love to say, oh, the church, they want to be in the bedroom and they want to guide, guide, you know, they want to regulate my sexual activity and this and that. I'm not going there, okay? That is, God has all kinds of instruction on this, but I'm going to talk to you about it here for a minute because Paul says, don't be like them. Don't avoid sexual immorality. Don't be like them. Some of them did it and 23,000 of them died. He says there were, there were consequences to what happened. Let me, add, let me put it this way. Did you know that in primetime TV, regular network TV, 75% of all shows have a sexual element? 75%. Did you know that as you watch television and in movies, 8 to 10 times per hour there is a sef- sexual reference? 8 to 10 times per hour there is a sexual reference. Did you know that by the time your child is 18 years old, through social media, the internet, books, movies, magazines, um, television, and so forth, they will see over a quarter of a million, they will be exposed to over a quarter of a million sexual acts. Let me ask you what percentage of those, all those events you believe are said in a context which is God-pleasing. I, I mean, when I say God-pleasing, I don't mean party pooper again. God invented the thing, by the way. This is God's idea. You're all here because God invented this. Okay? So seriously, I mean, I don't mean to be flippant or crass. It's the truth. I mean, I'm tired of having acquiesced and given away this beautiful gift to our secular culture, which tarnishes it, which degrades it, which uh, objectifies women, which uh, makes it transactional. It's, I'm, I'm tired of it. I would much rather say, God, thank you for this gift Thank you for this gift. We're all here because somebody exercised this gift. And, and I want to rejoice in that, and I want it to be a way that honors you. And this is my point, and I'm going to, I'm going to be very personal with this. My family and I, I've resolved to do something here. And this is in one area. I'm just starting with a one small thing. We love this TV show, The Big Bang Theory. We just, it cracks us up. I started evaluating the amount of sexual discussion there is on that show, and I was horrified. And this is what happens. This is what has happened to me. I have acquiesced. That's the word. This is what I think Paul's talking about. In idolatry, I think the warning sign is indulgence. You want to do whatever you want, whenever you want it, just because you want to do it. This one, I think, is acquiescence. So I'm not moralizing you about sexuality, about this or that. I'm a, this is what I'm saying is, I have become so numb to it that I can watch Big Bang Theory and not, with the whole people, group of people in the room and not be embarrassed. 20 years ago, if we had had that TV show on in my house, I would have been horrified. Horrified at the topics of conversation. And truly, I think these guys are brilliant comedians, and I think there's some brilliant writing in it and so forth, but the amount, because this is what it's doing, this is my point. If your kid sees a quarter of a million examples of sexual activity, who is countering that? What voice is countering that what God desires, let me tell you this, this is God's so tremendous plan. God is so good. Warning sign, warning sign. He says this, you know what? I love you guys so much. I want you to keep this activity into this place of commitment and safety and love, into this place in the bonds of marriage. And I've defined marriage for you. I'm going to keep it there. Because when it happens there, that's how I designed it. And I'll bless you there. Whether you have children or don't have children, I'm going to bless you in this area of your life in this way. Now, is that God being a prude? Or is that God being a loving, loving parent? 
I, I, I'm, seriously, we don't talk about it. We just don't talk about it. And we acquiesce. That's the warning sign. If we find ourselves, if you find yourselves just acquiescing, I'm not going to bother. I've given up the battle. I'm going to start the battle again in my house in terms of what we're going to watch, what's going to be on, and what we're going to watch. Because I want those things in my life and in my house that honor the Lord. Third thing. Oh, God's remedy. Oh, God's remedy on that one was endurance. It's kind of a, a persistence, being relentless. <laughs> Because what I find in sexual, uh, sexual uh, when this goes wrong, when sexual ethics go wrong, it's we devalue people. That's what I think happens. And when we are reminded, like I love to say this to young men, teenage boys, teenage men especially, when you go out with that girl, remember that's somebody's daughter. Remember that. And that's someone you should honor. And gals, we could talk the same way too. But I love to talk to them to the boys. That's someone you should honor. That person is valuable. My dad gave me one piece on this in dating that I'll never forget. He said, bring her back the same way you took her. Third thing. This is the third warning sign. You know, I've, I've driven a lot of miles, thousands of miles with kids and vans. And uh, I will tell you what, one of the common denominators for all those things is complaining. There is a relentless stream of complaining. And I find that this is testing me. The third, the third uh, warning from Israel's history is testing God. And I'm going to call it complaining. Because the example he gives, we should not test the Lord as some of them did. The example he gives from the book of Numbers is that they were complaining. And that that complaining is what was testing God. Because the complaining is ending up not uh, believing that God will do what God is going to do, that God does not, in fact, have their best interests at heart. That's what, how complaining comes off to a parent or to a person in leadership, a coach, a teacher. When they complain and complain and complain, it sends the message that this person in authority must not have my best interests at heart. And so in this one, what I find that is, is that means I'm just looking at myself. And so here, I'm going to change God's remedy is contentment. That's a good word. I'm going to add one. If you're writing notes, it's our theme for the year, and it's look up. Keep your eyes on the road is the point. Keep your eyes on the road. Take it off of your social media, off of yourself, out of your mirror, and look up. Because when we look up, we stop complaining. Whether we fully stop complaining, but the reason is this, is because we see it the way the driver is seeing it. When we look up, we see what the driver sees. Imagine if your whole world is that van, a 15-passenger van stuffed with 17 kids, and you're driving to Mexico. That is not a real perspective. You've got to look up and see what the driver is seeing, and that's my challenge for us. That's the warning flag. The warning side is God says, stop complaining, look up instead. The fourth thing is this. So my memory is going. I'm afraid this is not good. Um, I, uh, find, I find myself repeating. I um, can't remember where my keys are, and um, I forget certain events and so forth. I have to do more and more careful things. It reminds me of the gal who said, because I used to have like two passwords for all my stuff online, like two. Now I have like 12. 
And it's horrible. I have to keep track of all of these passwords. And of course, I emailed myself all the passwords, which means everybody can get them. So, okay. So anyway, so I, uh, so I have these passwords, and it's the gal. So the two old ladies are talking, and they go, hey, I had to change my password. Oh, yeah, again. So what did you change it to? I changed it to incorrect. That way, when, when I sign on and it says your password is incorrect, I know exactly what it is. <laughs> Watch, there will now be a rash of new passwords, right? New passwords, because their memory is fading. Here's my point on this. On the last one, don't grumble as some of them did. They grumbled as they came out of Egypt. They grumbled as they came out of being slaves. They grumbled as the Egyptian army was passing, pursuing them. They grumbled when they were hungry and when they were thirsty. And they grumbled and grumbled because they were unbelieving. Here's really the memory, because they forgot. So here's the warning sign. If we're not remembering what God has done, that's the warning sign. So what God has done is he's not saying you have failed in all these ways and you continue to fail me. What he's saying is I love you enough to say here's some warning signs for you. Indulgence, acquiescence or apathy, complaining and unbelieving, a failure to remember. This is all good news that God puts us in our life. And take heart. Here's the last part. Take heart. Because how Paul ends this passage is beautiful. He says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Here's the three things. I love this. Somebody, I had a colleague once say to me, well, uh, people don't speak in tongues anymore. God, God can't work that way anymore. I said, wait, you said God can't? I said, you can't use those two words together. And actually, I stand corrected. You can use it in one sense. God cannot deny himself. Second Timothy. And he is faithful. For when we are faithless, he remains faithful. For God cannot deny himself. People of God, take heart. That is good news. God is faithful. He cannot deny himself. Not will not. Not might think about it. God cannot deny himself. And you are his. The second thing is this. Yeah, the other thing, as a parent, you know how it was as a parent? You wanted to let your kids have some freedom so they might experience some things. They might, you know, I'm not going to rescue them this time. I'm not going to bring their lunch to them in third grade. I'm not going to bring in that report. They're going to have to get a B on it instead of an A. I'm not going to rescue them every time. And as parents, we had to decide, right? I'm not bringing their uniform in. They don't get to play. But this is the consequence. How else are they going to learn? You know, as parents, we made all those decisions, didn't we? What, where, what do we do? And sometimes I made really bad ones. Sometimes I made decisions that probably hurt my kids more than helped them. I wish it was otherwise. I tried my best, but I think I made a, a bunch of mistakes along the way. And I made some good ones, but I made some bad ones. God never makes a mistake here. God knows exactly how much to allow testing to happen. There's a wisdom that God has that I as a parent do not have and none of us have. So you should know this. When the temptation comes, God knows this far and no farther. God knows this far and no farther. Those tests are a faith workout for us. Not a trial, not a test, but a faith workout. It's a faith workout, and God knows exactly how to exercise. And the last thing is this. You know that phrase? It's a cliche almost. When God closes a door, he opens a window. You're familiar with that? It's actually this verse that is the basis for that idea. How does he say it? When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. 
Now, this is the good news, because sometimes there's a door that's closed, and sometimes there's a window closes also. And what God does in those moments is that he opens his arms, and he takes you to himself. Let's pray. Gracious God, we rejoice that in the season of Lent, we see you with open arms, arms extended on the cross, arms filled with love that have poured out grace and mercy on us, undeserved and unearned. We praise you, Lord, for putting warning signs in our path. Help us to receive those as measures of your love, not of your anger, not of your displeasure, but of your deep and abiding love for us. Lord, make us less arrogant so that we might see those signs and rejoice. Help us, Lord, also to seek to humble ourselves, to walk in the way and the manner that honors and pleases you. For within that, Lord, comes faithfulness and blessing. We praise you, Lord, for you cannot deny yourself and you have claimed us as your own. As you extend your arms, welcome us, heal us, and restore us. To the praise and honor of Jesus Christ, amen. Hey everyone, just a reminder that we have Lent Soup Suppers every Wednesday at 6.15 before our Lenten worship service at 7. Make sure to come to that. There is soup provided and bring a dish to share. Also, 10W Total Health for Men is starting up again on March 25th. It is going to be on Monday nights from 5.30 to 6.30. If you have any questions, you can contact Pastor Von Bush.